afternoon and welcome to the 93rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about communication and emergency management in the pandemic with Brian Houston and Jim Whittington. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 29th, there are 16,829,840 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 16,540,137 cases reported yesterday. And of those, 4,396,030 are in the United States. That's up from 4,309,230 yesterday. There are now a total of 150,034 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. It's up from 148,298 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that today with an extraordinary obituary. This was published in the San Antonio Express News on July 6th by Scott Huddleston, and the headline is San Antonio area emergency chief who led efforts against novel coronavirus dies of the disease. He was a leader in Atascosa County's fight against COVID-19. He scrounged for personal protective gear for first responders and jail guards wherever he could find it. He joked that he used so much hand sanitizer his hands were chapped. Then last week, early in July, David Persifka, the county's emergency management coordinator tested positive for the very virus he'd worked so hard to keep at bay. Prasivka, 58, died of COVID-19 and the effects of leukemia, which had been diagnosed shortly before the virus. It wasn't immediately known how he contracted the virus. It was a real shame and a real shock, and you could feel it this morning as we gave him a good send-off, Kyle Coleman, Prasivka's counterpart in Bayar County, said Monday. There were so many people down there that he had assisted and helped. The send-off came as area firefighters and other first responders from Bayer, Atascosa, and surrounding counties lined San Antonio streets and Interstate 37 leading to Atascosa, paying their last respects to Pacifica. He was carried in a white hearse from Methodist Metropolitan Hospital downtown to Hurley Funeral Home in Pleasanton, where funeral arrangements are pending. In June, Pacifica had been in Bayer County's Office of Emergency Management Warehouse, gathering personal protective gear for his people in Atascosa. On a Thursday, he was on the phone with Coleman, telling him he had been diagnosed with acute leukemia and was on his way to a San Antonio hospital. On the Friday, Prasivka told another colleague that he had tested positive for COVID-19, and by Saturday, the man described as a caring, reliable professional who always could be counted on in a crisis was gone. 
Since the novel coronavirus had hit South Texas earlier this year, Prasivka had spent much of his time working to secure personal protective equipment to use PPE to use the parlance of his profession for nursing home workers, voting sites, jail staff and inmates, and others in his rural county south of San Antonio, Coleman said. David would drive around the county and distribute that PPE out to make sure that they got it. If they needed anything, they'd call David. And David got it for them, he said. After Prasivka visited the Bayer County Office of Emergency Management Warehouse, he left with a supply of protective suits for county jail employees, Coleman recalled. Three days later, Coleman got a call from Prasivka as his wife, Donna, was driving him to the hospital in San Antonio. Prasivka sounded surprised as he told Coleman he'd been diagnosed with leukemia. He told me that he had acute leukemia and that his doctor told him he needed to get up there pretty quick, Coleman said. On that Friday, Prasivka told another emergency manager that he tested positive for COVID-19. Coleman texted him that day but didn't hear back. He became worried. Prasivka went into renal failure and died on that Saturday. Atascosa County officials have said that leukemia likely compromised his immune system before he passed away from the very disease he had been valiantly fighting against in the community, COVID-19. Recently, David had been leading Atascosa County through the COVID-19 pandemic. His humor, heart, and passion for not only his emergency management job, but his family will be missed by many, Atascosa County officials said on Twitter. Persifka began working in Atascosa County's emergency management office in 2013 and was named coordinator in October 2014. Before that, he was a firefighter in Jordanton for 27 years, holding numerous offices in the volunteer fire department, serving as chief for several years. Coleman said Prasivka was well-liked in a tight-knit family of emergency management professionals who are comfortable working together, often in high-pressure situations. He was known for helping others in neighboring counties, especially in McMullen and Wilson counties. He provided assistance after the 2017 mass shooting at a church in Sutherland Springs left 26 people dead in rural Wilson County and after a 2015 tornado in Floresville. On his agency's website, Prasivka noted that his office prepares for disasters large and small and supports other counties in time of need. Emergency management is a very rewarding job, he wrote. Coleman said he didn't know how Prasivka contracted COVID-19, but he said Prasivka wore PPE and was the consummate emergency management coordinator. It's one of those things that all you have to do is slip out once to be exposed, Coleman said. Social media sites were filled with remembrances of the emergency management leader. Some talked about his neatly trimmed lawn. Others recalled how he often had breakfast at Jordanton's Restaurante Chili Bandera, one of his favorite hangouts since long before the pandemic forced businesses to shut down or scale back. His Facebook page features a giant American flag as its profile photo. Among the many images he posted in support of police and first responders was a meme with a lit candle honoring, quote, all our essential people who are keeping things going during COVID-19, unquote. Around that candle are the words, I can't stay home, I'm an emergency manager. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today, and I'm really pleased to introduce you to my two guests. J. Brian Houston, Ph.D., is Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Communication at the University of Missouri, and is Director for the Disaster and Community Crisis Center at the University of Missouri. 
He is core faculty in the University of Missouri Master of Public Health program. His research focuses on communication at all phases of disasters and on the public and mental health effects and political consequences of community crises. Jim Whittington has been a public information officer for over 20 years and is now a consultant with Incident Services. He's responded to over 90 large and complex wildfires. He's been the spokesperson for incidents of national and international interest, including the Cerro Grande, Rodeo Chedesky, Wallow, and Yarnell Hill fires. He also worked with media as part of the Granite Mountain Hotshots Memorial Service Team and led the PIO function for the Iron 44 Memorial Service. Whittington is a qualified lead instructor for a number of FEMA and National Wildfire Coordinating Group classes. Whittington started his career in Washington, D.C. office of Congressman George Brown, Jr., and he has worked for the National Archives and Records Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, United States Forest Service, National Park Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. Brian and Jim, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you. So I'd like to start out the way I have been with all of these, getting a sense of where you are and how things are looking there. Um, Jim, I might start with you. What's the COVID-19 situation looking like and where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Medford, Oregon, which is in the south, far southwest part of uh, Oregon. Uh, we're on the I-5 corridor, almost exactly halfway between the Bay Area and Seattle. So when this first started, uh, that gave me some pause. I thought that we would surely get hit by travelers going back and forth. Uh, hasn't turned out that way. Uh, Oregon's been doing reasonably well compared to some of the other states. Uh, I think we are in that situation now where people have gone through the, uh, the initial months and are starting to get tired of following the protocols. And so we're seeing a few more parties, a few more uh, relaxation of standards uh, on the personal level. And um, as a consequence, we're seeing a slight increase in, in cases as well. Um, so it's something that, that bears watching. But overall, I've been fairly impressed with how uh, Oregon has handled um, the outbreak so far. Is there a significant division within Oregon in terms of how the uh, governor is perceived and this kind of friction between local mayors and, and the governor that we see in some of the other states, or are things a lot more amicable out there? Well, it's like, um, you know, everybody thinks of Oregon, they think of Portland, uh, but that's only a small part of the geography of Oregon. Uh, the east side, on the east side of the Cascades, uh, quite rural, dominated by ranches, farming, um, very much a kind of a great basin uh, vibe to it in terms of politics, uh, more than a Pacific Coast vibe. And so it, it's a kind of a uh, a battle between the east side and the west side. And of course, the west side has more people, so they end up winning the political battles. But, you know, we do have uh, uh, a Republican congressman from the east side. Uh, we do have a fair amount of um, folks who are on the, the far right, militia groups, those kinds of things that pop up. Uh, in Portland, there's been a lot of folks uh, coming in, trying to stir things up uh, from the, the far right uh, with the protest. So it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, you'll find there are a lot of people who um, uh, don't appreciate uh, the governor. And then there are other folks that think she's doing a, a pretty good job, probably just like any other state. This um, 
there's a pact. There's these multi-state pacts. There's a Great Lakes pact. There's one here in the in the East Coast. Is, is that still in place? I think that may have been the first one in California, Washington, and Oregon were trying to coordinate some of their statewide procedures. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, I think that still is in place. I'm not sure how um, how much impact it has. Um, but it, there's still a lot of discussion between those states, and I think Colorado and uh, was added, um, and then Idaho has been kind of shifting back and forth a little bit. Um, but uh, it's it definitely helps in terms of coordination, I believe. And you know, I think when you start to look at schools and universities, I think you'll see more alignment because of that. Mm. Brian, let me turn to you. Where are you calling in from? And and similarly, what's the COVID-19 situation looking like there? Yeah, I'm in uh, Columbia, Missouri. So I'm uh, at the University of Missouri's campus, which is Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri is a college town, about 100,000 people uh, in the middle of Missouri, right in the middle of the state. So we're halfway between uh, Kansas City and St. Louis. Um, Missouri's uh, on the increase in number of cases overall, continuing to increase every day. Um, things that are going on here right now, uh, we're getting a lot of uh, the, there's been no statewide action on masks from our Republican governor. So those decisions are still being kind of uh, fought out at the local level. Um, and so we do have a mask ordinance here in the, in the city of Columbia. It's, it's more of a for Missouri, it's more of a liberal college town. So we were one of sort of the early first adopters. But some of the other communities across the state are having their city council meetings regarding mask mandates. And that seems to be getting a lot of attention. Um, I do think we're seeing at this point even more conservative, smaller towns in the state um, ending up with mask mandates. Branson, Missouri, I don't know if you've ever heard of Branson before, but it's uh, kind of Opry land of Missouri, right? So quite conservative area. They voted for a mask mandate yesterday. So you're kind of seeing the tide swing at the local level in terms of masks. Um, and then kind of the other big thing that's on our radar right now, particularly here in Columbia, is getting back to school uh, this fall. So University of Missouri is still planning on um, having some in-person classes uh, starting August, uh, late August 22nd, I think is about our start date. Mm. And so you know, um, it's going to be sort of a hybrid model with some online learning, but a lot of in-person classes. So we're preparing for what that's going to look like, what the plan is going to be on campus. Um, and a lot of schools, a lot of elementary and secondary schools across the state are also, you know, still planning on having in-person uh, classes this fall. And so um, that's one of the issues that's really top of mm -hmm. mind, obviously being in the education environment. But for lots of families and parents and teachers and all those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, as state uh, cases are increasing, we're now thinking about going back to school and, and that's a stressful situation to be in. Yeah. That's not the direction that you want the curve to be going when you're talking about back to school, you know, school supply shopping and things like that. How many students at university of Missouri? Uh, 30,000 total approximately. So, um, you know, and students want to, I mean, it's interesting, like one thing that uh, this uh, epidemic pandemic so far has taught, you know, has shown us is how much we appreciated being able to be on campus, be in the classroom, be interacting with others, right? And so students want that, parents want that, everybody wants it, right? And so 
but that doesn't uh, make it safe for uh, maybe the best um, uh, you know solution necessarily. But this is where we're at is in that the state government and, and administration wants some in-person instruction to happen. And so that's what we're planning on moving into the fall as of now. You have a situation there in Missouri, like Georgia, where the governor is is exerting sort of preemption powers against localities with municipal governments. You described, you know, sort of at the local level, pushing, let's say, for masking Um, in Georgia. The governor, Brian Kemp, has been really aggressive about saying, no, you can't you can't do that. Is is something like that in Missouri, too? Yeah, fortunately, we're not in that situation. I mean, our governor is definitely not going to push a statewide mask mandate or any real strong, uh, you know, um, recommendations at the local level that those get adopted. So he's letting things happen locally. Um, and so, you know, as you mentioned, it could be worse, right? We could be in a case where the, the government is pushing back on local decisions. And, and again, like I, I've been surprised most of the cities and towns that um, there have been a few exceptions, but most of the cities and towns, when they take up the mask mandates, the, the city councils have tended to you know, not unanimous votes, but have swung to mass. I, I mean, I think that um, the increased case count is just good evidence that uh, that's maybe um, the best we can do right now. Well, I'm excited to have both of you here and to talk about communication and disaster. And um, I read your bios at the top, but I wonder if we could find out a little bit more uh, about how you got into the kinds of work that you've been doing, what kinds of questions uh, you still find interesting as you do your work. Jim, can I start with you? I mean, you've worked with more federal agencies than I think anybody I've ever met, perhaps. Uh, and uh, so you've been communicating about risk and hazard with a lot of different audiences over the years. What got you into it and what kept you in it? Well, it's a it's a long and tortuous path, uh, my career is. And um, I actually went to grad school in U.S. history um, and then got a job at the National Archives. And after a few years of playing around with that, uh, I realized that I wanted to do something more uh, current to be involved in things, not just read about things that happened. And so then I started to to look around and ended up working for uh, the Environmental Protection Agency uh, in Atlanta. And then we had a kid. Um, and we're like, we don't want to raise a kid in the middle of Atlanta because, you know, the commute was terrible, pollution was terrible. So I took a job with the Forest Service in Utah, and that was quite the cultural change. Um, but uh, that kind of got me into a wildland fire, and that got me into crisis communications and risk communications and public affairs. And um, it kind of snowballed from there, and I was able to take the the skills I had um, through my history education and kind of apply them uh, to my new calling and um, uh, figure out some good things and some bad things and and make you know make a little bit of a difference uh, on incidents and help communities when they were in crisis. I've had the opportunity a few years ago to make a trip up to to Yarnell uh, to see the location where the the fire there. I don't know if people remember that. Um, disaster. Maybe, Jim, can you tell us just a little bit about it, what it was like to work in your the capacity you were in for that fire? It was such a, 
just being there for me was really moving. And I had to state I had the chance to go there with State Forester at the time, and he really was able to tell me some of the back story of it. It's just a it's a crushing story. I'd like to hear a little bit of your your sense of it. Sure. Um, I was in Oregon the day it happened. I had done a lot of my um, training uh, in wildland fire. You have incident management teams, uh, type three, two, one, one being the most complex, handling the, the largest, more complex fires. And so you, it takes years and years to work yourself up to where you're a lead uh, command and general staff member on a type one team. And so I had done a lot of that training with um, the Southwest team when I lived in Arizona and New Mexico. And, um, you know, usually, or a lot of times when they would have a big fire down there, they would call me, even though I was in Oregon, because we knew each other and, you know, I, I was familiar with the team. And so I was watching that fire <clears throat> that Sunday, and um, I didn't think it would turn into much because the fuels were um, not going to carry fire or not hold fire for a long time. Uh, typically in that, those kind of fuel types, uh, when the winds stop, the fire lays down and, and you can get a, a handle on it pretty quickly. So, and that it was right at the end of the, the fire uh, year for those guys in the Southwest before the monsoons kick in around July 4th. Um, and so I, I wasn't expecting to, to go, but I was in contact with a, a buddy of mine on the team. And um, we were lamenting that I wouldn't get down there this year or that year. And um, then uh, got a text that said LODDS, line of duty deaths, a plural. And so that was uh, that was kind of a, a shocker. Um, and at that point, I went and talked to my wife because I knew I'd get the call. Uh, and I said, you know, this is this sounds like it could be a tough, tough deal. And I want to make sure that, you know, we're OK as a family for me going because it's it can be a traumatic experience. And sometimes it takes you quite a, a long time to get over working fatality incidents. So we worked some things out and we agreed that I would go and a call came and I went. And so I, I got there the next day and then um, was in charge of giving media briefings uh, at the fire for a few days and then bumped up to um, Prescott to work on the memorial service uh, up there. Uh, and then after the memorial service, we did uh, a number of funerals, um, uh, mostly on the periphery, just to make sure, you know, no media or reporters, anybody showed up and tried to crash the funeral. Um, so that was a, a tough time. I think one of the, it's, it, you know, we had a lot of folks from FDNY there. Um, and they, uh, fire department of New York, they get, they provided a huge resource for us and helped us out a great deal. And I got to thinking that it, it's working on that fire was probably in some ways to wildland fire, like, um, nine 11 was to structure a fire. Uh, you wanted to, everybody wanted to go, everybody wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to help, but you were there. And so the stress is a little bit greater because you're representing everybody who wants to be there and wants to help. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so there was, there was that aspect of it that I, I found kind of interesting. Um, and then the, the interactions with all the um, structural guys, uh, the structural um, representatives from, you know, everybody sent um, um, bagpiper or drum corps member or, 
um, you know, some kind of representative to to be at the memorial service. That was kind of fascinating too. So it was a it was a unique experience. I hope we never have to go through that again. Uh, but if we did, uh, we definitely learned some lessons about uh, how to do that. And um, uh, I guess I, I'm remiss in not reminding your listeners that uh, that fire, uh, 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots uh, died um, together, and um, that was a that was a big shock to our system, our community, and still is. Thank you for sharing that, and and that's important perspective. I think as we have our conversation today and talk about sort of the grim realities that are being reported every day in communities across around the world and across America. Brian, I wanted to kind of ask you the same question. You seem to wear multiple hats there at Missouri, both in public health and in communication, and then with the communication center. What got you into this work? What were the questions that really pulled you in and have kept you there? Yeah, I, I didn't intend to necessarily be in, in this line of work. I, my academic training was in my professional background and academic training was in communication, which I like because it applies to lots of different contexts and issues and situations. So you didn't have to sort of stick to one thing. Um, but I grew up in Oklahoma, which is a pretty disastrous place. Um, and so uh, in terms of tornadoes, in terms of uh, you know, wind and and um, uh, thunderstorms. And then I was living there uh, at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing in the early 1990s. And so that was, you know, kind of the first um, major terrorist attack uh, in the United States. And so um, so I was living in this environment of, of, of disasters and then doing thinking about communication and persuasion. And as I was finishing up my PhD, I ended up going to work with a research shop at the University of Oklahoma that was led by Dr. Betty Pfefferbaum, who was doing a lot of disaster mental health research. I started doing that research coming out of the Oklahoma City bombing. And then when I started working with her, this was post 9-11 um, and just before Hurricane Katrina. And so lots of opportunities. It was an area where disasters were being studied and um, communication issues were always essential. And I think what has drawn me and kind of sustained me to this work is less about understanding the disaster and the crisis per se. I'm less sort of chasing those events and, and, and sort of, um, you know, consumed by those events and more interested in the way these, these um, situations, these crises really illuminate uh, the reality of uh, our social structures, our neighborhoods, um, us as humans, right? So it just becomes these moments where things are laid bare and um, it really allows us to kind of re-examine who we are as humans and societies in ways that aren't possible at other times. And and always, I think, offers that promise that this is going to be that moment where some real change happens, right? And I think we're, I think I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of COVID. Like, you know, these crises are always these moments where it's possible that maybe we'll learn the lessons and make these changes, and we'll come out on the other side different and better and more connected and more whatever it is that we're sort of thinking about. And so that moments and those moments are what continues to pull me back in raises interesting mm -hmm. questions and i think makes the work you know really engaging and sustaining despite you know some of the things that jim was talking about in terms of 
you know, the reality of what is actually going on. There's always that possibility that um, we'll learn something and implement it moving forward that will really make a difference. It, it's fascinating to me, the continuity between our, my discussion yesterday and, and today, but yesterday I had two choreographers on, David Brick and Ishmael Houston Jones. I, I don't know if I'm not saying you guys are not artists, but I mean, coming from quite different right. professional sets, mm -hmm. and yet our discussion did revolve a lot around this idea of um, society, you know, the, the structures, the underlying structures laid bare, and then this question of, and Ishmael Houston Jones raised this question yesterday about, do we want to go back? Mm -hmm. Do why We keep talking about going back and rather than embracing some possibility to move into some kind of new realities. Um, and so maybe those are, uh, it's interesting for me to hear those continuities across these, these two days. Um, I want <clears throat> to, excuse me, I want to turn the conversation now to, to COVID-19. And I guess, you know, Jim, you have a lot of experience in helping, like providing consulting and working in disasters that may last over a period of time. And I know you have served as a coach, um, a consultant for emergency operations centers as they do their planning and thinking about a longer response to wildfire, for example. That provides an interesting bridge over into thinking about how emergency operations centers have been prepared for pandemic, right? I mean, it seems like there's some corollary there. This has been such a weird there was a moment when every emergency operations center across America was activated or, or lots of them were activated simultaneously. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you, what's going on inside those EOCs, how they might be coping with the stress of the long term? Take us into that world a little bit. Sure. If you, if you think about the, uh, the pre-COVID world, um, many of the crises, emergencies that, um, folks came across were short-term, uh, you know, probably wildland fire. Uh, we have large fires that can go for, for weeks or months. Uh, maybe um, a Midwest flooding that can go on for months. Uh, beyond that, there aren't that many kinds of incidents that go on for an extended period of time that you can't just kind of muscle your way through with adrenaline and coffee and, and make it for, you know, a day, three days, two weeks. Uh, and call it good. And so it takes a much different approach if you're in it for the long term, uh, both from um, your, your own internal systems, because some of those processes that are set up to deal with the immediate uh, may not work over the long term. And so you have to continually look for um, uh, little failures and little breaking points in your systems and refine them for the long term. The other thing is that, you know, stress and fatigue are cumulative. And um, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't manage your stress for the long term, then you're going to crater at some point. And I think um, uh, that's one thing that uh, a lot of folks have been, been hitting that wall uh, with COVID. They've been going for so long um, and doing so much and trying to, to you know, approach it like it was a, a daily, you know, a, a 24 hour or 48 hour issue, but it's long-term. And so you have to make changes to your processes. You have to make changes to how you 
converse, how you make decisions, how you come together as a team. And you have to make changes to how you take care of yourself. And you have to say, hey, you have to have the you know, ability to know yourself enough to say, hey, I need some time off. I need a break here. Uh, and then I'm going to come back and let somebody else take a break. Um, and I think we're finally getting to that point um, with a lot of um, the EOCs. And it's kind of an eye opener for them because they haven't experienced it before. Right. Um, so um, they're learning some of the, the lessons that it took us in Wildland Fire decades to learn their learning over the course of a few months. Um, so I think that's probably a big issue in terms of uh, long-term incidents is the, the care and um, the uh, ability to maintain performance over long-term. We have too few people who are really good at this stuff. We can't afford to burn anybody out, but yet we're doing it. And we need to stop and, and reset and make sure we're, we're capable of handling for the long haul. Can I ask you, just to stay with this a little bit, the special challenge for public information officers or people in in the public sector who have the responsibility to communicate with the media um, over, as you said, 48 hours, two weeks, maybe that's one thing, but we're five months in now. So we're talking CDC, we're talking HHS, multiple different federal, state, and local agencies engaged what are the special problems inside the information, the media um, shop, and uh, how they're building relationships, how they're maintaining their stamina, how when the message changes, uh, what kind of stresses does that add? I'm curious to know. Well, <clears throat> the big thing with COVID is it's not a discrete incident. It's society-wide. It affects all aspects of society. And that just increases your complexity levels tremendously. Um, and, you know, I think um, the other issue is, uh, well, two issues. One is we have a huge amount of information, CDC, uh, state public health, local public health, everybody's giving, providing guidelines, everybody's trying to get their information and their message out there. And so kind of sifting through a lot of those things and putting it all together and delivering it to people in a way that uh, they not only understand, but they they can grasp and take action on is, is a huge challenge given the volume of information. And then of course, there's the, the information that is counter to best practices. And we see that coming from uh, any number of places in our society, including elected officials. And so countering some of the um, soapboxes that those folks have uh, while you know, maintaining your place as a you know, public sector employee or communicator while your, you know, bosses and people who give you money and all those kinds of things are saying something different is a really tough position to put people in. And um, that mm -hmm. is another stress that is probably um, not necessarily unique, but has certainly come out and become much more prominent with COVID than any other incident that I can think of. Brian, I know this is part of what you're tracking in your research, the, the ecology of communication that we find ourselves in around COVID-19 and this term you've used, the infodemic, as Jim was just referring to all of these different messages out there. Can you walk us through a little bit um, the problems? I mean, isn't more information good? That's sort of the assumption our society's kind of built on in some ways, but I'm hearing maybe there's maybe that's not the case here. 
Yeah, I mean, that really has always been the assumption of sort of like normative communication theory that more information is is best, right? And um, and and maybe if it's more perfect information, then that theory holds true. But that's not the reality that we're in, right? And so this infodemic idea is very much kind of uh, has two important parts to it, I think. One is that there's just a ton of information out there, right? And so um, it's difficult to navigate that information uh, for all of us. You know, um, there's so much different, so many different sources. Jim sort of mentioned different agencies, but so many different sources, so many different perspectives, so many different opinions that there's just a glut of information that would be, that's difficult to navigate. And then along with that, we're in a situation where a lot of that information is very poor, bad, wrong. Um, some of it is accidentally wrong. Some of it is not ideal, uh, but some of it is um, misinformation and disinformation, which is purposely wrong. Um, rumors, uh, conspiracy theories, um, you know, trying to make a buck on a miracle cure or whatever. And, and, and this isn't necessarily new. Humans have always kind of existed in this um, difficult information environment when we're trying to make sense of very uh, challenging issues um, and threats. But, you know, our, our communication ecology of social media has just um, put those normal things on steroids and blown it up. And we're very much in a, in a really difficult uh, communication environment, communication situation. And um, I, as Jim kind of hinted at, um, you know, I don't know that I've ever observed a situation where at the top uh, of the information food chain, um, those sources are feeding that disinformation, misinformation, lack of clarity, confusion. I mean, there, there are plenty of times when I have had uh, maybe disagreements with what the official message is, but it's always it's usually been clear or, or um, at least somehow uh, coordinated and consistent. And here we have the exact opposite of that. So throughout this whole communication information system, it's just how do you find your way um, if you're a normal, regular individual citizen, which we all basically are, um, it's really a, a, a unbelievably challenging and difficult situation. Well, let me stay with this for a second, Brian, because it's a question we talked about a lot on COVID calls. Is this is this Donald Trump? I mean, are we talking about a unique situation here where the communication coming from, as you said, the top of the information food chain is erratic because of the president of the United States? Or is this exposing, as you said, is this laying bare some other sorts of problems, new problems, which maybe have to do with social media, maybe they have to do with pre-existing um, ideological fracture points in, in America. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm reluctant to, to hand too much credit, but also in some sense, too much blame to one person, even if it is somebody as um, unique as Donald Trump. How do you, how do you think about that problem? Yeah, I think yes to everything you just said, um, basically. <laughs> so, I mean, I do think I, that... I wish people said that more often. All right, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you presented it as if, as if they were sort of mutually exclusive, but I, the yes, I they're all true, right? Um, 
Okay. So, I mean, so maybe I'll just say kind of uh, three things. One is that I think a lot of this is normal human communication, right? Trying to make sense of an uncertain situation that's evol evolving in front of us. And so we look for explanations and, and a part of those explanations are some, you know, and we want miracle cures. And so there's kind of some rumor and some misinformation as part of that messy process of making sense of a situation that we can't explain yet. And, and that's always happened and will probably always happen amongst humans as we try to understand our world, right? So those, so those are kind of normal things that are always going to happen. Um, and then, yes, social media amplifies that, makes it so much faster than it used to be, makes the scale so much wider, right? So a rumor that used to maybe exist in my town or my neighborhood now goes global instantaneously. And so the scale and the speed at which these things are happening are exponentially larger and quicker and faster than they used to be. And then, yes, when, you know, who would have ever imagined we'd be in a situation where, um, you know, the the um, miracle cures, you know, the snake charmers oil would be being pitched at the very top of the U.S. federal government. I mean, never. Right. I mean, and so uh, and that that confusion and, you know, uh, don't wear a mask type stuff would be coming from the top. I mean, that's just. It, it just it feeds into the system and amplifies all these other things that are going on and just um, makes the entire ecosystem uh, rife with uh, bad information, wondering. Um, and then maybe the last thing I'll say, too, is that um, you know, we're watching this science uh, progress in real time. You know, we're watching preprints of academic articles come out. Um, you know, the... The World Health Organization was initially, no, we don't need masks. And then those, those recommendations changed. So we're seeing the, the real messy process of science play out along the way also. And so that's just a further um, chance for there to be information, new information that uh, runs along the system. So it really is a convergence of just um, kind of amazing situation um, that, I, that we haven't seen on this scale before, at least. Can I add a little bit to that, Scott? <clears throat> um, Please do. Yeah, I wanted you to. So when when we get a call for uh, to respond to a wildfire, it's after the fire has started. It's after the fire has grown to where it overwhelms local resources, and we come in and there's uh, this chaos in the environmental in in the um, communications environment, as Brian would say. And so we try to you know, start immediately getting posts out there on social media, having briefings, uh, having uh, putting things on Facebook, videos, all kinds of stuff, and try to pull as many people as we can uh, kind of away from the periphery to as close to the reality of the incident as we can get, right? There's always going to be some people that are hanging out on the periphery and you're never going to reach them and you're never going to be able to get them. But you want to try to bring as many as you can uh, as close to the reality as you can. And so after a few days, that starts to work because people start to look at you as the authority and the expert on the situation because it's wildland fire and you're wildland firefighters. In a global pandemic, it has to be addressed at the national level. And the president has to be that person who sets the, um, the mood and sets the, the table for everybody else to tear off of. And if they're not doing that, then it creates confusion 
uh, throughout the whole um, tree of communications for both public and private um, agencies and groups and people. And so you're just left with this, this confusion, and it's really tough to pull order out of it if you don't have some structure at the top. Let me stay with that problem then, Jim, based on, on your experience. So maybe not between the president, and I'm thinking about the president and Tony Fauci, you know, sort of standing literally side by side and saying they get the same days and they say two different things, same administration. Um, maybe not at that level, but have you seen anything like that before where a governor and a fire marshal, where you had two you know, important experts get crossways with each other and you have to try to sort out in real time what the message is? Have you seen that in practice before? Um, there have been times where politicians have come in and tried to make hay with a certain interpretation of events that went on during a fire. Um, for the most part, we just stick to our guns and, and keep um, working the, the incident and keep messaging our message. And um, usually it, it turns out okay. Um, there, you know, we, 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 particularly during election years, politicians like to visit fires. So we have, you know, all kinds of politicians, all kinds of people running for offices, uh, wanting to be seen as if they're, you know, doing something, managing the incident, helping things, you know. Um, and I think one of the, um, the big things we need to watch out for this year is that uh, that political influence on um, incidents in the sense of resource allocation. I think we've already seen it with COVID where political um, concerns play into who gets what supplies and what um, uh, expertise. And we don't want that to happen in wildland fire because we've spent decades building up a process where uh, we've tried to take the politics out of it as much as possible and look at only values at risk and um, resources available and all those kinds of things. And so once we start to see that, I think, um, uh, or if we start to see that, I think that will be a, a big sign that we're uh, in the wildland fire community in a similar place to where CDC was at the beginning of this. Just kind of following up on kind of what Jim was saying there, but then earlier as well. I mean, one of the other really novel aspects of this event is the time, right? I mean, you know, most disasters, I mean, we always like pre-event communication, event, you know, communication during the event, communication post-event, right? And think about these different phases. And, and usually that event communication, like when the disaster is occurring, is the shortest phase, you know, because the event happens and, and then, you know, in recovery and response. And, you know, you, you usually quickly, I mean, as Jim was sort of mentioning, in terms of scale, these things are moving into the recovery phase. And so here to be, you know, months into this, still in the middle, I mean, we don't even know where we're really at in, in this event. You know, we don't even, that's, that's another kind of confusing part, but the time here is so much longer um, to be dealing with this phase of the communication that that just further complicates things because we kill, we still can't really say like what happened. We still can't even have that debate about what happened because these things are still happening and are to happen. And so that really makes it so much more complex than 
they are in kind of the normal disasters that we might be thinking about. I just want to stay with this as a communication problem in that regard. Um, and back to this um, kind of infodemic problem, Brian, in your work that you're doing and, um, and this is part of what you're, you're part of the, you're the lead of one of these converge NSF national science foundation converge teams that the, um, is happening at the Hazard Center in Boulder that Lori Peake is organizing and Lori has been on the program. Um, are you able to say anything at this time in, in the midst of this slow disaster um, where emphasis can be placed to try to declutter it a bit? I mean, we don't have unlimited resources. So if you're a governor's office, let's say in Oregon or in Missouri, and you need to get a consistent message out despite all of the all of the noise that's out there have you it can the research point us in the right direction of where you need to double down to try to get a clear and consistent message across or are we is that a 20th century idea and i'm just still carrying around 20th century ideas about how communication works right well i i definitely don't have any answers at this point and one of the things that we're looking at in terms of the converge work is really um, how complex the communication environment is. So, you know, a lot of kind of crisis or disaster communication is thinking about, okay, what's the most effective message here? How do we best message this warning or this sort of bit of information? And so those are really thinking about discrete messages that, that we need to know about, but it's kind of assuming kind of a normal functioning discrete, as Jim mentioned, kind of contained system to message in. And so given the scale of this, we're kind of in a different environment. And so what we're looking at is um, the different layers, levels, systems of communication and trying to understand how they fit together from social media to public agencies, to friends and family that are in our interpersonal connections, to local organizations, um, and these sorts of things and kind of understanding the broad ecosystem, which is a big um, lift. And so I think the research that we're doing is going to take some time. Um, but what I but I, what I would say is that I think where there are some successes are at the local level. Right. And so there are places here in this country um, and across the globe that are having successes and I think that's because the sort of top-down messaging that Jim was uh, talking about in terms of government officials are able to happen in some cases, maybe at the governor's level, or maybe even more often, like at the mayor and the city council level, where it's sort of like, we can identify our local constituency here within this global pandemic and have some success in some clear top-down messaging of, you know, we're going to wear masks. Here's how we're doing testing and contact tracing. You know, we're not going to open our schools. You know, maybe there's a kind of a few layers of decisions that can be communicated and messaged at the local level and be effective, right, to an extent at, in that local jurisdiction. And, and maybe, you know, in some ways, that's really the promise of democracy is local decision making that works and is effective. We've always been such kind of a top down federal machine in terms of disaster response. And, and we need that here. I'm not arguing against it. But maybe what I'm saying is we are potentially seeing some successes at the local level, kind of implementing mm -hmm. a more traditional model on a small scale. 
I, I appreciate that insight. I think that's really valuable. And, and, and also though, it, it does, it scares me a bit, or I have some concern. I had Don Kettle on political scientist who's written a recent book, uh, about federalism, which, and he points to this exact thing you said, Brian, and, and his concern though, is that if, if we try to replicate that, where we find those successes, we end up in a situation where maybe the citizens of um, cities with good mayors, particular mayoral types of systems, Seattle or New York City, they end up with good protection. But citizens in cities like Atlanta, which we were talking about earlier, in a state where the governor wants to go to war with the city to score political points, they get left out. And so if the longer vision is one where by virtue of being in the United States, you share in a democratic good, which in this case is correct information, that local, those local successes, not that anybody would turn them away, but they also point once they point us back again, what to, what Jim was saying, which is the, the problem of the absence of the good information coming from the top. I, I worry about that. I mean, I don't know what you, what you make of that, either Brian or or Jim, the sort of the success of the local as a threat to the possibility of a really functioning national emergency management system. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, if you look at the history of emergency management, and particularly the history of the incident command system, um, it comes from that very problem. Uh, there were one year there were a bunch of fires in Southern California, and every <clears throat> little um, town municipality was fighting it at their borders and nobody was paying attention to the larger fire. And so it just kept moving around and these little towns and little places were doing the best they could. Some were having success, some were not, um, but there was nobody taking a look at the big picture. And so um, that's kind of the genesis of the incident command system. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, if you, if you <clears throat> make that your model, you're going to hit those kinds of situations where you have a big fire and nobody has the capacity to um, to deal with it, you know, big fire figuratively, whatever that kind of incident might be. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I'll make one little point about wildland fire here. All of the guidance that um, we have for incident management teams and wildland fire this year is to get in touch with local and state public health officials uh, when you go to fire, because we're, we're national resources. We travel all over the place, um, depending on where the need is. But we found out that sometimes you go into a state and the public health uh, operation there is run by people who are in line with the governor who doesn't really take the pandemic seriously. So that kind of puts a uh, uh, wrinkle in mm -hmm. the way that we're able to respond and we're able to take care of firefighters and everybody else who shows up on an incident to, to help work the fire. And so you just need some consistency at that at the, the top levels to trickle down and, and make things easier for everybody. Um, uh, you know, you can work the problems on the margins, but you need that, that central core of uh, basic understanding to, to deal with this, I think. Yeah, and I, I would, I would remind people you're, I just wanna remind people you're listening to COVID calls. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, and I would just kind of getting back to your sort of original question there, Scott. I mean, I would not disagree that, um, you know, totally ineffectual federal leadership uh, during a uh, public health crisis is an existential threat to, you know, that nation, right? I mean, so, um, 
no doubt about that. The local local solutions will not, at the end of the day, substitute for federal leadership here. Um, yeah. So we have constrained our conversation so far completely to United States examples, but I wonder if either of you would like to to broaden the border conceptually here a little bit and and bring us into maybe lessons you're learning or attention you're paying to what's happening in in our hemispheric um, partners in, in, in Canada or in, in Mexico or other parts of the world where communications seem to be running a little bit more smoothly in the middle of this pandemic. Either, either of you interested in that, that dimension? Well, I can talk a little bit about kind of the wildfire perspective. You know, we, uh, mm -hmm. we've never had a big wildfire uh, season year in the middle of a global pandemic since, well, since 1918. And we don't have a lot of lessons uh, from those guys who were back then. Um, so, and then the other problem is we have climate change, which is bringing fire to a tremendous number of countries that don't have a lot of experience with it. And um, uh, the systems we've developed to work wildfires and even hurricanes and other kinds of uh, disasters um, aren't set up to work very efficiently in the middle of a pandemic. The safety protocols you have to put on um, really get in the way of uh, the efficiency of those processes. And so when you have decisions that are time sensitive, now it takes more time to, to make those decisions and to gather the information to make those decisions and to communicate those decisions. And so I think that's where everybody is right now, um, regardless of what country you're in, is trying to figure out how we do all these things that we used to do uh, by reflex, now we have to do them in a new way and we have to think about them as we're doing them. And so now thinking about it before you make a decision is much more important than making the decision because you can always go back and, and you know, kind of help a, bad, a, a quick decision, but it's tougher to go back and fix a bad decision. Um, and so the decision-making processes that we're used to seeing on incidents, on disasters, is going to be slowed down because of COVID, because of those protocols on communications, in, interpersonal uh, things. For instance, wearing a mask, um, you know, you can't see facial expressions. And so in wildland fire, we're under stress, and we also have a culture that helps us manage that stress. The facial expressions become part of that culture. And so now you can't see them. And so you have to specifically express everything verbally mm. and make sure that it's clear and understood because English is a tough language to communicate in, right? Especially under stress and time. Um, so all those kinds of things are gonna add to um, the speed in which we can manage disasters. And, um, you know, it's all a reflection of how we're managing COVID as a society too. That, that's yeah. a fascinating set of insights that I think probably travel across borders. I mean, particularly this problem very concrete problem of the mask communication issue. Um, Brian, I don't know, do, do, do you look across borders in your work? Yeah, and I mean, the, just kind of a couple of comments or right, thoughts that come to mind when you raise the question. Um, the one is, you know, this is a global pandemic, so we should really be thinking about global communication and coordination. And I think the reason why we're not having that conversation, right, is because mm -hmm. of uh, the problems here in our country at the federal leadership. Um, you know, we should really be thinking about the U.S.'s role in this global effort and 
we can't get to that level because, you know, we're so, uh, we have so many problems at the federal level here, right? So we're not even having the right conversation because we're getting in our own way. So that's one thing that definitely comes to mind when you raise the question. And there, uh, you know, we do um, a decent amount of work in um, South Korea, for example, and some other sort of Asian and South uh, Eastern Asian countries. And so, um, you know, uh, many of their experiences uh, with other respiratory diseases, particularly SARS, have laid a groundwork mm -hmm. for these sorts of public health interventions that were slow to uptake here in the U.S. that have made a big difference there. You know, wearing masks is... Um, was already kind of ongoing and, and a culturally accepted norm. So it is interesting to see how much of an effect the cultural and the political landscape um, has in uh, influencing different outcomes and situations across countries. I mean, there's stark differences, I think. And um, and, and so I think we'll be digging in and, and studying these for years to come. And, and um, yeah, so there's a lot of you know, some of the, one of the best situations to explore, you know, cross national differences in uh, emergency and disaster communication than we've been presented with before. Seems like such a tension uh, in in what you both do, trying to make sense right now. What we're what we're living through is how much of this we can generalize. It comes back to what we were talking about earlier, how much you can, you know, treat in, in the abstract and actually use that to to build our theoretical base, to build our practice base versus how much of this we need to just say, this is the quite odd politics of an odd moment in American history. And it's not somehow representative. I mean, I guess I, I just to bring it back to the politics of that for a second, um, Supposing the administration changes, would either of you expect a major change in the information ecology? I mean, can it is that the the hinge point that you would imagine all of a sudden next January, if there was a Biden administration, that communication would move back into something we could expect with previous presidents, Democratic or or Republican? Or has this launched us out into some, I guess I'm asking how much is going to be a revert to the mean here, or are we off into some, something that we can't predict and, and explain because we haven't seen it yet? I don't know. Jim, what do you, what do you think about that? Is this election a turning point for comms? I would suspect that uh, uh, a Biden administration would become more familiar uh, to folks. Um, and again, that familiarity is key because um, you you want to be able to communicate without having to think through everything, right? And so now what the position that communicators are put in is they have to think through everything, not only the validity of what they're saying, but how it will be interpreted and how it will be processed by their supervisors and a whole host of other things. So you're, you're constantly doing that calculus in your head. So, and that gets in the way of delivering a good message because you're, you're focused on that instead of the information you have to deliver. And so just bringing some stability to that, that hierarchy uh, and um, the um, leadership positions will free up communicators, I think, to be more effective. Um, on the other hand, I think this is a good lesson for us because I only see the complexities in society and communications increasing, uh, particularly in, in my part of the world. 
you know, climate change is just going to get uh, worse and put more stress on us and more stress on society and more stress on communities. And so um, how do we work through that? How do we redesign systems that were put together in the mid 20th century to reflect where we're at right now and where we need to be in 2050 or, you know, 2100? How do we get provide the flexibility to make that happen? Um, so I think, you know, one of the things we really want to do is look at the lessons we learn and not be reactive in sort of the fixes we make. We want to be deliberate and want to think through everything as we go forward once we get past this and once we're looking at, uh, you know, how we how we make things uh, better for the future. Yeah, you know, the like when you think about sort of the CDC sort of basic um, lessons on crisis and emergency risk messaging, it's it's um, the, gu- the the guidance is quite simple. And I always thought it was I maybe I scoffed at it a bit because it was so simple. It was always like, you know, be credible, be consistent, be simple, be first. Right. And it's always like, ah, that, you know, but um, if we could just get back to that sort of messaging at the federal level. I mean, it would make such a massive difference, and and I'm and I, I please forgive me, folks, if I've ever sort of uh, didn't uh, give the CDC their due and sort of those best practices, because I do think the Biden administration could get us back to some of that, and if we just had some of that, I think it could sort of stabilize the ship a bit and let us, uh, the rest of us, get to work in a way that can make some progress as opposed to just treading water or whatever it is we're doing right now. That is a, it's a pleasure to hear you both sort of describe the importance of it that way. And, and Brian, I think you probably are forgiven um, because sometimes those kinds of statements feel very aphoristic. They feel, you know, just like, but we haven't really seen times like right. this, um, at least not lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be credible, um, and to, to maintain the credibility of government as a trusted source of information is not something in my lifetime that I had thought could be eroded so quickly. And yet we've seen it. And Jim, I really appreciate your connecting this back to climate change and shifting our focus of the periodization of this textbook that we're imagining here in a sense that we're in the first chapter of the book going forward into a set of interrelated crises that are going to unfold over the coming over the coming decades. I think that's a really important and provocative way to think about this, that the communication, it, Brian, you said this too, that the types of disasters we're talking about are going to be at multiple temporalities now. And there's so many more people involved in the communication and so many people sending and receiving messages. I think we're going to have to we just have to take that on board that this is increasing complexity. We're almost up on, on time. Um, but I wanted to, there's one more sort of area. If it's okay with you guys, if you have another couple of minutes just to find out, um, and it's to this point, and it's about compound disaster, about how we, and, and it's a communication problem. So I think Brian, I want to ask you about this first. And maybe it's part of thinking about the infodemic, you know, so, so much information, different types of information. Also, what is the disaster? I think if you had asked me in March, I have one answer. You ask me after late May, I have a different answer. And you ask me now, 
I'm not sure how to answer. It's a complicated racial health and economic disaster at this point. What does that mean in terms of effective crisis communication? And, and I, I want to throw a wrinkle into that because I know you're also expert in mental health. Is there a point at which you cannot communicate clearly because it is so complicated and that it adds too much stress to people? To I just worry about an overload here, that this event has become so complicated that it induces its own stress. It takes on its own its own life. Yeah, you know, and like when we do research on, um, we do a lot of research on sort of um, exposure to media coverage of disasters and mental health reactions, right? So like how much coverage of COVID are you watching and what are the mental health reactions you're having? How much uh, coverage of uh, protests um, and, and police violence are you watching and what are the mental health reactions? And um, it's, it is... A, spiraling process often right that this watching the stuff thinking about it talking uh, you know sort of trying to learn more can be distressing right and it can cause us to have stress reactions um, cause us to have distress which often can push us to consume more information to try to get the answers and find out more and get the information we need you know which causes more distress so it can it can very much be a spiraling process of more paying more attention consuming more information causes more distress which pushes us to try to find more information so um there is there is a need to find some balance here right to take you know and and again you're talking about simple sort of things that make a difference take breaks find some balance in our lives disengage where we can um but then at the same time, when, I mean, these are acute emergencies and it's um, not possible to totally disengage. And I think Jim was kind of talking about that earlier, where we, we don't have the actual breaks in the things that can give us the moment that make it easy to disengage. And so what do we do then? Um, and I don't necessarily have an answer, but it is clear that Consuming more of this information can often cause more distress, which causes us to seek out more information to address our distress, which causes more distress, which can just reinforce and spiral. And I think we can all sort of notice times in our lives when we've said to ourselves, man, I got to take a break because like this is just not doing anything more for me. Yeah, I'm just chasing this rabbit hole and this is not helping. I got to take a break here. Um we all come back pretty soon, but we got to find those moments. Jim, on the practitioner side, does that resonate? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you know, we typically plan our whole year based around the months where we're going to have active fires. And um, there's downtime that we have, particularly in December and January, to kind of refresh um, recalibrate, uh, get our mindset, uh, you know, get rid of the stresses from the previous year and pr get prepared for the next one. Um, the situation we're in now is that there's no time, there's no relaxation, there's no ability to, um, to, to power down because even if we were in December when there are not very many fires going on around the country, you're still having to stay engaged on the COVID front. 
and think about what that means for the 2021 season and what that means, um, you know, for the training that you're supposed to do and all these other kinds of things. And so that stress is constant. Um, whereas before, as we were saying, you know, you have some opportunities to kind of um, uh, deal with it a little bit better. So it's um, in it, it, we see that on on fires too. You know, on the ma- on the micro level, uh, working the fire line is very tough physically and mentally. You have to stay mentally engaged the whole time you're out there for 12, 14 hours. Then you come back to camp and you're supposed to be able to relax and take a shower and eat a meal with your friends and um, just kind of let that go and then get ready for the next day. But now firefighters are complaining that they're coming back and they still have to stay engaged because they have to pay attention where everybody is, right? Where that six foot distance is, Mm -hmm. who's wearing a mask, who's not wearing a mask. How do you get in line to go get a shower? How do you get food? All these kinds of things they're having to think about and stay mentally engaged in. And it's going to have an effect later on, uh, particularly if we start busting a lot of fires and uh, they go on for an extended period of time, that mental fatigue is going to come into play in decision-making later. So it's a, it's a tough deal we're in, but, you know, at the same time, you can't really afford to totally disengage either. Well, we're, we are out of time for this discussion. There's so many more topics we could talk about. I want to thank both of my guests, Jim Whittington and Brian Houston for uh, sharing this hour and bringing so much information and insight to us and remind you, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls Monday through Friday at five o'clock Eastern time tomorrow, I'll be talking with uh, Alexa Dietrich of the Social Science Research Council. And uh, Alexa and I have actually been collaborating on a series, um, curating a series of essays for SSRC and its disaster studies. And we're going to talk about that and talk about her research and what um, the COVID-19 pandemic is doing to the way we think about how social science can play a role in society and how research is working. So please do join me for that tomorrow. Brian and Jim, great to speak to you both. It's always a pleasure when people are even are great on Twitter and then even more interesting in person. And you both are definitely that. So thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow.